Well, of the numerous moral issues that demand our attention today, and there are very many moral issues that demand our attention, but of all of those issues, surely among the most important are those that deal with the sanctity of life, the sanctity of life. These are, in the basic sense of that word, vital issues. They deal with matters of life and death. And dealing with matters of life and death, these vital issues of the sanctity of life are of the utmost importance. And that's what we begun to think about last time. And we were using John Murray. I think everybody here knows, everybody's been here, but just to remind you, John Murray here, Principles of Conduct, Aspects of Biblical Ethics, we've been using him off and on as our guide. But as we began to think about the sanctity of life last week, I gave something of a definition, and I'll say it again. It's the sacredness, the worth, and the dignity of life, in particular human life. The sacredness, worth, and dignity of life, which calls for reverence, respect, protection, and even penalty. I attempted last time a brief survey Again, using Murray, if you want more of an in-depth survey, turn to Murray. Very helpful. We were looking, though, at the biblical foundations for this doctrine of the sanctity of life. And we were looking mostly in Genesis 1 to 9. And let me remind you quickly of what we were considering. We saw that before the fall, the sanctity of life is implied. And it's implied by the threat that we have in Genesis 2, 17. God has said, do not eat of the forbidden fruit. And he gives this threat, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. After the fall, we see that the sanctity of life is clearly established in God's response to Cain's brutal murder of his brother Abel. And that's in Genesis chapter four. And then we even see it in what Murray calls this halo of sanctity that God puts around Cain's life, the life of the murderer. And from that we learn in the words of Murray that life is so sacred that even the life of the murderer is to be respected. Crime is not to be punished by crime. And before the flood, we see again that the sanctity of life is underscored by God's summary charge against mankind. And you remember it was corruption, but especially that man had filled the earth with violence. Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 13 in particular. Man had filled the earth with violence, as Murray puts it, had filled the earth with the desecration of life's sanctity. And it's this that brought about God's judgment in the flood. And then after the flood, it's further underscored, the sanctity of life is by God making provision, as Murray puts it, for the safeguarding and enhancement of life. So he makes provision for safeguarding life, enhancing life in at least three ways. One of those that we focused on was the protection of human life, first from animals, Genesis chapter 9, verses 2 and 5, but in particular from other men. And let me invite you to go ahead then and turn to Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, which are the key verses as we're considering these matters. 
Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. This is after the flood. God has made a gracious promise never again to flood the earth, never again to curse the ground. And then also these provisions for protecting human life from animals, but from men in particular. Genesis 9, verse 5, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, animals, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Now, many years later, under the Mosaic economy, we also see that the sanctity of life is clearly proclaimed in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That commandment is based on the sanctity of life. It's grounded upon the truth of the sanctity of life. You shall not murder. Now, my plan for this lesson is to pick up firstly where we left off and spend a little bit more time on the question of whether or not the death penalty, and in particular the death penalty for murder, whether or not that should be abolished. And then we want to move on to consider a few other matters that are related to this issue of capital punishment. And now I just have to say, if you're impatient to move on, just please bear with me at least this one more lesson, because I think it's important for us if we can be clear on these foundational matters and on this issue, then we're well prepared to think about the other issues that might be on your mind, abortion, euthanasia, and other things that we need to discuss. So even though capital punishment might not be the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the sanctity of life, we have to acknowledge it is the first thing that the Bible deals with, and it's what the Bible deals with most clearly. So I think we need to spend a little bit more time, and you will find at the end of this lesson, I have still left much untouched that we ought to consider, but I hope it will be helpful. So we ask again this question, is the requirement of Genesis 9-6, which we have just read, whoever sheds man's blood by man his blood shall be shed, is that requirement still valid? Yes. Okay, well let's think about this a little bit. As Christians, this is how we need to frame the question. Is this requirement of Genesis 9-6 still valid? So it's not just simply, should we or should we not abolish the death penalty? Should it be retained or should it be abolished? We can't simply ask it that way. And the reason is simply, and this, this goes back to what we need to do in all of these ethical matters, matters all of these moral issues that we, that we consider, our primary concern needs to be what? Yeah, what has God said? So if you learn nothing else, if you get nothing else from this, in any of these matters that we face, and there's gonna be many things that weren't even imagined by those who wrote the Bible, of course God knows the end from the beginning, but there's things today, and you might be tempted to say, well, God hasn't said anything about that, we have to look elsewhere, but we need in all of these issues to say, what has God said? So that's why we frame the question this way, is this requirement in Genesis 9-6 still valid? And if being in step with God brings us out of step with society on this point or any other point, we have to accept that. 
What has God called us to do? To be in the world, but not of the world. He's called us to shine as lights in the darkness and not for the darkness to overcome the light. So we need to be prepared to be out of step with society and in step with God. Now, you probably know that many states have abolished the death penalty. I had to look this up. I didn't know the number, but this is at least uh, what was stated to be the latest. I'm assuming it's correct. 23 states and the District of Columbia have abolished the death penalty. It is retained by 27 states, although the governors of six of those states have declared a hold on execution. It's also retained the death penalty by the U.S. government, although a hold was declared in 2021, and it's retained by the U.S. military. So if you include the current holds, there would appear to be more momentum for abolishing the death penalty in our land and for many different reasons, and we can't consider all of the reasons for abolishing the death penalty. Now, many in the world would passionately assert that the death penalty is brutal. It is without exception barbaric, it's cruel and unusual, it's out of step with a modern and enlightened society. That's, that's the argument basically you're gonna hear from those in the world arguing and saying that it ought to be abolished. Let me give you a quote from one international organization that focuses on human rights. They hold that the death penalty breaches human rights, in particular the right to life, and the right to live free from cruel, sorry, and the right to live free from torture or cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. Now, obviously, torture, cruel, inhuman, degrading treatment and punishment, we ought to be against that as strongly, if not more strongly than anyone else. But you need to understand when they are saying that, they're referring to the death penalty without exception. So they oppose the death penalty in all, I'm quoting, in all cases without exception, regardless of who is accused, the nature or circumstances of the crime, guilt or innocence, or method of execution. So you see what, what the world would say is, in and of itself, the death penalty is cruel, it's barbaric, it's torture, it's inhuman, it's degrading, it infringes upon the rights of man, in particular the right of life. You see, so that's, that's the argument, at least one of the main arguments that is out there. Now, as we think about this, I believe that such statements reflect the pride of man who would presume to declare so boldly that a penalty required by God without exception is a breach of human rights, especially the right of life. Think about that. This is the creature essentially telling the creator that he is infringing on his rights. The creature telling the one who gives life to all things, you have no right to say, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Is that fair? Isn't that what's being said essentially? Last time we saw that Genesis 9, 6 Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, is rightly interpreted as a command and not just a statement of fact or a prediction that a murderer, somebody who picks up the sword is going to die by the sword, that God will see in his providence that murderers are eventually murdered. That's not what's being said. It is a command that is given in Genesis 9, 6. 
And this interpretation is confirmed by later revelation that clearly requires a murderer to be put to death. So Numbers 35, which we'll come back to in a little bit, but it's a key text. Numbers 35, we read, the murderer shall be surely put to death. The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. But there's a question that still remains, and that is, what about now? Okay, that's Numbers 35. That's under the Old Covenant. What about now under the New Covenant? And we said last time under the Old Covenant, the death penalty was, was required for 18 different offenses. So there were 18 capital offenses under the Old Covenant. If the death penalty for murder, we ask this, ought to be maintained or retained, then why not the death penalty for some of those other things? Adultery, rebelling against parents, cursing God, all those other matters. You see, it's a fair question to ask. And there are several considerations that lead us to the conclusion that the death penalty for murder is in a category of its own. That there's a uniqueness here to this death penalty, to this requirement of Genesis 6. Firstly, and I'm, I'm still reviewing, but there's a few extra things that I want to say here. Why is the death penalty in a separate category? Well, the nature of the crime. It's the ultimate crime against our neighbor with irreversible consequences. Secondly, the uniqueness of the reason given for this institution, for the institution of the death penalty, for in the image of God, he made man. That's the reason here in Genesis 9, 6. This is unique. Check out all the other penalties in the Bible that God says, I require this and you will find in no other place is it said as a reason for in the image of God, God made man. Thirdly, the abiding validity of this reason. It's just as true today as it was in Noah's day that man is created in the image of God. So if the reason for this requirement of the death penalty for murder, if the reason is still valid, does that not argue strongly for the requirement still being valid? Think also, fourthly, of the context of the requirement of Genesis 9-6. The death penalty for murder was first given not to Israel through Moses, but it was given to the human race through Noah. So we should consider that context. This should at least give us pause before, quoting Murray here, before we apply to this ordinance, the death penalty for murder, before we apply to this ordinance, the abrogation which we find in the case of the death penalty for other sins under the Mosaic economy. A fifth reason is that the absence, there's an absence of further revelation that would undermine the mandate of Genesis 9-6. Because it could be the case that God required it and then later on there's further revelation and he says, I no longer require it. But we don't find that. And then sixthly, the New Testament evidence would confirm for us that this requirement of Genesis 9-6 is still valid because as we saw last time, Paul's teaching on the sword placed by God into the hands of his ministers, civil magistrates, and in order, quote, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. That's Roman 13, Romans 13, 4. 
1 Peter 2.14 teaches the same thing. And as it was brought out by our brother last time, Paul's statement in Acts 25.11 certainly bears upon this. Paul says, if I have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. So Paul recognized there were crimes that were worthy of death. And he says, I don't object to it. In other words, he's saying that would be right. So I think the case is abundantly clear. So is that the end of the discussion? Say, all right, let's move on. I don't think it is. I think there's several related matters that are worthy of our consideration. And I want to bring out a few of those now in the time that remains. Several other matters worthy of our attention as we think about this. So it's clear that God does still require what we read here in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. The reason still holds, for in the image of God he made man. Therefore, the requirement also still holds. But here are a few other matters I want us to think about. The first is our testimony and gospel witness to the unbelieving world. Our testimony and gospel witness to the unbelieving world is at stake. Paul's words to the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 2, are relevant here. He says to them, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So the church is meant to shine in the world. And it's understood that the world that surrounds is dark. And we are to shine. And the picture is like, on a very clear night, especially in the winter, the black sky and the bright stars are shining. That's the picture. We're to be like that, like stars shining in the night sky. Now, if we're to do so, Paul is saying here that the church needs to avoid certain things that dims our light. And he just gives two examples here. What, what is it? Complaining and disputing, right? He says, do everything without complaining and disputing. I think primarily he means against God so that you can shine, so that it will appear that you're the children of God in this world, in this crooked and perverse generation. But not only that, Paul is saying that we must go on holding fast the word of life. So avoid things that would dim our light and keep holding fast the word of life. That's the whole word of God, but I think especially the gospel, the message of life. So let's apply this to this issue. If and when we advocate for the death penalty, we must not do it in a way that dims our light. We must not do it in a carnal spirit or do it with glee or do it with cold indifference. To do so would dim our light. We must not forget that we are still talking about the death of a man or a woman created in the image of God. Even if it's just and right, according to the word of God, that the death penalty 
be brought against them, we're still talking about the death of one created in the image of God. And the death of one who, like all of us, will die and face what? Judgment. So there's a sobriety that we ought to have when we're talking about this. Our heart ought to reflect the heart of God when we talk about these matters. And God is not indifferent to the death of the wicked. Even though his justice would demand it, he is not indifferent to the death of the wicked. Let me give you one text worthy of our reflection. Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God says that, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so we ought not to take pleasure when we're saying that this person, that person, according to the word of God, ought to die. Should we take pleasure in God's justice and in, ju- in, right, in righteousness reigning and the word of God being carried out? Absolutely. But in the death of the wicked, our heart ought to reflect the heart of God. I have no pleasure in their death, but that they would repent. So we have to ask, how well do we show ourselves to be children of God if we argue for the death penalty in such a way that we appear to take pleasure in the death of the wicked? So think about that. Now, further, if we advocate for the death penalty, we must never forget that we all deserve the death penalty. So that needs to be in our mind as we're doing this. So again, we're thinking about things that would dim our light as we're making these arguments. And as the world is looking on and seeing us. So if if our heart isn't right and it doesn't reflect the heart of God, but also if we forget that we all deserve the death penalty because of our sin. And what does Paul say? Paul, Paul talks about all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's in Romans 3. And he goes on in Romans 6 to say that the wages of sin is death. So we have to keep this in mind and that will keep us humble and thankful as we are thinking about these issues and also advocating. God's perfect justice demands that each and every sin be punished without exception. That's the teaching of the Bible. There can be no sweeping of sin under the rug. That's not what the gospel teaches. And this is especially where we, holding fast the word of life, have an opportunity to hold forth the word of life to the world that is around us. And in fact, that word there in Philippians can be hold fast. It can also mean hold forth. So right here, even as we are advocating and speaking about the death penalty for murder, we have an opportunity to hold forth the word of life to a needy world and to say not just the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus. So the gospel is that God made a way for sinners to escape the death penalty and not by saying that justice is not going to be done or doesn't need to be done. God couldn't do that because he's perfectly just. Sinners are able to 
avoid the death penalty because God sent someone else to bear the death penalty in our place. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The sinless one who became sin for us was made sin for us, the scriptures say, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. So you see the opportunity that we have, perhaps a discussion comes up about the death penalty with an unbeliever. You have an opportunity ready-made to share the gospel and to let your light shine. So reflect the heart of God in these matters. Don't speak of it in glee or with cold indifference, and then bring the gospel in these matters and say, hey, I deserve the death penalty, and yet somebody has paid it for me. Now, I wanna put this point positively then, and basically to say that advocating for the death penalty on biblical grounds and in a biblical way that reflects the heart of God, that this is one way in which the church can bear witness to the world. Now, a second matter that I want us to think about. Many Christians who would agree that the requirement of Genesis 9-6 is still valid would nevertheless argue for the abolition of the death penalty for murder on other grounds, or at least they would be uncertain. And I'm going to guess that there's several here who maybe have that bit of uncertainty. As you think about this, you say, I know what God's word says. I believe it. I don't want to go against it, but I still have some questions. Many Christians do. Probably the most common grounds that are cited for still saying, yes, that's true, but the death penalty should be abolished. Probably the most common is the fact that in any criminal justice system, some more than others, of course, but in any criminal justice system, you will find what? Corruption, injustice, cruelty, etc. It's just a sad fact of history. If you were to survey the history of the death penalty, you would see all kinds of excesses and abuses. People wrongly convicted. People who got the death penalty who shouldn't have got the death penalty. It wasn't a crime deserving of death or, or that it was inflicted in a way that was amounting to torture or something that was cruel and unusual. So you look at this. It is a sad fact of history that this has been abused. And some then would say, well, let's just sweep it all away because man apparently cannot carry this out. A couple things I would say about that is one, that none of the abuses in carrying out this requirement will be overlooked by God. None of it will escape God's righteous judgment, but also these tragic realities do not argue for the complete abolition of the death penalty. Let's think about this. It is a fact that the requirement of the death penalty for murder was given to sin, sinful men. When God laid down this requirement, it's, it's a new beginning, basically. There's been the flood, and now there's Noah and his family, and God gives this requirement. Did he give that requirement thinking that man was going to be better this time? No, he knew still what was in men's heart. In fact, it even says it in Genesis. So if we back up a little bit before Genesis 9, 6, still after the flood, God knew that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. He knew that the world would again be filled with violence. 
putting it in New Testament terms, when God put the sword into the hands of his ministers, into the hands of civil magistrates, he was not ignorant of the fact that some would abuse their power and authority. So the point I'm making is to say the least, the death penalty has never existed in ideal circumstances. From the beginning of this institution, there's always been the possibility of its abuse, carrying it out unjustly or in a manner not pleasing to God. So the argument for the, for the abolition of the death penalty based on the corruption of a society, and in particular the judicial system of that society, it is understandable, but I think ultimately weak. Many faithful Christians have made this argument. I'm sympathetic to it because who wants to be in any way involved with injustice? Who wants anyone to be unlawfully executed? Who wants the state to bear the sword with cruelty and with tyranny? Who wants men and women put to death for crimes that are not deserving of death? So in some ways, it's just easier to say, let's get rid of it altogether. But this is where I think we need to go back to that question, is the requirement of Genesis 9-6 still valid? And if it is, then we need to think a little bit more. Here's, here's how one man summarized it, and this is a really, I've mentioned this before, we're using Murray as a guide, but um, I have found what, what parts of this book I have read by John Jefferson Davis, Evangelical Ethics, uh, I found it very helpful, and you might too, and he's, uh, writing, I don't know, maybe 2014, 2015, and he's dealing with some more contemporary issues than Murray deals with. But he says this, and I think he's right. If a given principle is valid, whether capital punishment or some other principle of criminal justice, then the imperfections of administration are justification not for the abolition of the principle, but rather for its reform and more even-handed application. Now, quickly, another reason a Bible-believing Christian might oppose the death penalty, and I think there are many, and I, we, we could, it would probably be helpful to spend some time saying, okay, what are some reasons why a Bible-believing Christian might oppose it? But here is another one, I think, that is a big one. It's out of a desire for the murderer's reformation and repentance unto life. That's a good desire. Absolutely, 100%. But we need to consider at least two things. First, justice and a regard for the sanctity of human life demand it. Demand the death penalty for murder. And then secondly, God knows better than we do what will lead a murderer to repentance. Right? God knows better than we do what will lead a murderer to repentance. Think about the thief on the cross. Apparently, he was converted on the cross. As he's hanging on the cross and he has this encounter with Jesus, he realizes his sin. He agrees that he is there justly suffering the death penalty and that Christ is absolutely innocent. So God, even as he is there suffering the death penalty, God grants him repentance and faith. And it seems that God used the death penalty in the life of the thief on the cross to bring him, to humble him, and lead him to repentance and faith. You can read about that in Luke 23. Again, Davis says this, 
Rather than foreclosing the possibility of salvation, the reality of the death penalty forces the one convicted to think about his eternal destiny. It reminds the murderer in a way that life imprisonment cannot of the grim but inescapable truth that it is appointed for men to die once and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Another has put it this way, that God has instituted the death penalty for the benefit of the murderer to shock him to repentance, if possible, by the immediate prospect of death and judgment. Now, I was thinking about this, and, and this is a similar note. Thinking about that phrase, shocking to repentance. I believe one of the reasons why we have those 18 capital offenses under the old covenant is that we would read those and be shocked to repentance. So that a disobedient child for example, would read that a rebellious child was to be put to death under the old covenant and then to say, I might be worthy, deserving of death because of my sin, my breaking of the fifth commandment. You see how that could shock to repentance? Or you look at the other capital offenses under the old covenant, such as adultery or fornication or homosexuality or cursing God. And any of these people who might be sinning in this way in this day and age to look at that and be shocked to repentance and say, oh, my sin is that serious that at one point God required the death penalty for something that I think was so normal. Everybody's doing it. Everybody sleeps around before they get married, et cetera, et cetera. You look at the Bible and you see, oh, and they could be shocked to repentance. So I think that's one of the reasons that we have all of those things. To shock a sinner to repentance and to lead them to the mediator of a better covenant, to Jesus Christ. As a third thing I want us to think about, this is the final thing here, as we have only a few more minutes, and that is as we seek to think biblically about this complex issue of capital punishment, there's other considerations that require our careful attention. Let me mention two, and then I'll mention a third and give a little bit more about that. One thing would be that we would ask the question, under the new covenant, are there other crimes besides murder that are deserving of death? They use Paul's words there in Acts 25, 11. So certainly the death penalty for murder, but are there other crimes? So that, that's a question that demands our attention. Also, what according to the Bible constitutes murder warranting the death penalty? Now, this is where going back to Numbers 35 is helpful. It's a key passage here. And there it's talking about the cities of refuge. But also it lays out in particular Numbers 35, 16 to 29, draw a distinction between premeditated murder and what we might call involuntary manslaughter. So we read there, for example, if a man pushes another man so that he dies, it's a, it matters whether he did that out of hatred. So he pushes him, maybe there's a cliff there, he did it out of hatred. He's lying in wait, he pushes him, he falls off to his death. It matters whether he did it out of hatred or, as Numbers 35 puts it, he did it suddenly without enmity, 
without hatred. There's distinction. So there's principles there in Numbers 35 that I believe are abiding that we ought to think about and reflect on as we're trying to distinguish, well, what is deserving of death and what isn't? What would we say is murder and a breaking of the sixth commandment and what might be something like involuntary manslaughter? And at this point, perhaps you would talk about such things as self-defense. We're not going to get to that. That was brought up last time. We might get to that. That's an important matter. But here's another matter. And this is what I want to think about a little bit more here. We should consider the judicial procedure under the old covenant. We need to think about the judicial procedure under the old covenant. One person argues this, and my understanding is that this person, a believer, would argue for the death penalty being retained, but says evangelical Christians who favor the death penalty ought to be aware of the judicial safeguards that God provided to prevent the miscarriage of justice and protect the rights of the accused. So those who might be troubled and say, well, we, we, there's always a potential of injustice, and there is in this life. We need to understand that the death penalty was not just thrown around in the Old Covenant. There were safeguards. So our brother mentioned one already. I'm going to point out a few. The standard of proof for conviction was stricter than ours. This same man that I just quoted says that it amounted to certainty and not merely beyond reasonable doubt, as we say, under our system. So let's look at a few texts. Turn to Deuteronomy 17, if you have a copy of the Bible. And we're going to be hanging out in Deuteronomy 17 and then later in Deuteronomy 19. And we are going to go very quick. I just want you to see this. And to think about it. So the standard of proof amounted to certainty. Let's read Deuteronomy 17, 2 to 5. If there is found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God and transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, either the sun or moon or any other host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. But you see there, it was a matter of certainty. Secondly, conviction required, as it was just said, the testimony of more than one witness. Look at the very next verse, Deuteronomy 17, 6. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And you can also look at Deuteronomy 19.15. Turn back, if you want, not right now, to, to Numbers 35 and verse 30, just saying the same thing. So note, this is stricter than our system, right? In our system, circumstantial evidence alone might be enough to convict someone of a capital offense. Here, at least two or three witnesses. Thirdly, we're looking at the safeguards God had in place under the Mosaic economy here. Thirdly, to bear false witness in a capital case, 
And by that I mean against someone who's in jeopardy of the death penalty, to bear false witness against that man or woman, that was a crime punishable by death. So you can just imagine somebody uh, hates somebody else, sees that his enemy is on trial uh, for something that would bring about the death penalty. And they could say, ooh, okay. I can murder them essentially without pushing them or throwing something at them or stabbing them, whatever it might be. I'm gonna bear false witness and say, I saw them do it. You see in what God says, it's in Deuteronomy 19, six to 19, I'm gonna summarize it. You can read it on your own. Basically it says that if it is determined that that person is bearing false witness, whatever they intended to bring about to the person they're bearing false witness against, it shall be brought about to them. So if they're doing it in order to get somebody to the death penalty, then they're gonna be deserving of the death penalty. A very strong safeguard against people bearing false witness. A fourth thing, under the Mosaic Code, once a person was convicted of a capital offense, the death penalty was mandatory. It was mandatory. You shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. That's Numbers 35, 31. Now you apply that to our day. If a person is convicted of a crime deserving of death, it should not matter whether that person is rich or poor, black or white, famous or a nobody. If there's conviction, then it ought to be carried out. So these kinds of things and more are worthy of our careful attention. And our time is up, it's beyond up. I realize I've probably raised more questions than I've answered. But I wanna remind you the purpose of this is not that we answer all of your questions. Speaking for myself, I could not do that. But we're, we're trying to equip one another with principles from the word of God to, to live wisely in this world. Not to disengage, but to shine brightly as lights. And you know the issues are ever-changing. But we know that the Word of God does not change. And so we go back again and again to the Word of God and pray that He will give us wisdom to know how we ought to live in this world for His glory. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for these few moments to spend in Your Word. If anything was untrue or unhelpful, we pray that it would be cast aside And take those things which are good, true, and right, and helpful, and write them upon our hearts, and help us to think clearly about these things. And now bless us in the coming time of worship, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.